So, this is the self-development with tactics. Book. So, today we're gonna go ahead with Darwin's idea by Daniel Dennett or something. Uh, that <laughs> the actual title is either gonna be or actually both be in the title of this video or of this podcast episode and it is also gonna be in the description and or in the show notes if you're on the podcast. And today we're once again gonna do it in the way of having a little bit of a presentation. So the summary is completely the same but I'm only structuring it and also presenting it in a little bit of a different way just because it is funnier for me on one hand and um, maybe even better for you. I might be slower. I might also just actually be faster. Um, I don't necessarily think so, but but yeah, I think it's just making it better and I do want to do it in a different way. So we will see, you know, maybe this is how I'm going to keep things from this point on um, because I can still make everything live and it is amazing, which um, yeah, we're going to see. So the next chapter, I, I still don't know if he's or if he structured them in chapters. I do hope but yeah, we see. The Emperor's new mind and other fables. What Godel proved beyond any doubt is that when it comes to axiomatizing simple arithmetic, ar <laughs> arithmetic, I'm sorry, there are truths that, that we can see to be true, but that can never be formally proven to be true. Which I think just a little bit of an intersection there is for a lot of things in life. You know, we often think that something is true. You know, for example, I kind of think about the Nelson Mandela effect. Um, but, you know, we all think that, yeah, quote unquote, we all think that it is true, but it is actually not. And there's just just trillions of more things that are the same exact thing that we think it is the truth just because maybe our brain, our rationalized thinking tells us it is the truth, but it is not. It clearly is not. But yeah, the other thing. To make the question more specific, consider some rather special varieties of mathematical truth. It is well known that there can be no all-purpose program that can examine, examine I'm sorry, any other program and tell whether or not it has an infinite loop in it and hence it will not stop if started. This is known as the halting problem and there is a Godel-style proof that it is insoluble. And I've actually had to look it up because I didn't know about the halting problem before and it turns out that it is something that's relatively interesting and so I'm also gonna read it. In computability theory, the heading halting, I'm sorry, problem is the problem of determining determining from a description of an arbitrary computer program and an input whether the program will finish running or continue to run forever. Alan Turing proved in 1936, which is quite some time ago, that a general algorithm to solve the holding problem for all possible program input paths cannot exist. For any program F that might determine if programs hold a pathological program G called with an input can pass its own source and its input to F and to specifically do the opposite of what F predicts G will do. No F can exist that handles this case. A a key part of the proof was a mathematical definition of a computer and program, which became known as a Turing machine. The holding problem is undecidable over Turing machines. Turing's proof is one of the first cases of decision problems to be concluded. The theoretical conclusion that it is not solvable is significant to practical, to practical computing efforts. Defining a class of applications will no which no programming invention can possibly perform perfectly. Jack Copeland in 2004, attributes the introduction of 
the term holding problem to the work of Martin Davis in 1950s. Now we know it, I just don't really completely get it. I would have to kind of just bury myself under books and stuff and articles to really get the hang of it. But I think it is something that's relatively interesting and also um, interesting to see that it seems to be still relevant, even though it was quote-unquote discovered in 1936, or just at least um, around that time. And um, it's pretty interesting. It really is. But I do wonder why you want to know or decide or figure out if a certain program, once you have started it, is going to end or if it is going to run forever. And if I think about this question, then, uh, you know, maybe we're just talking about different things. But I assume, I guess, unless there is outside forces, the software, the program is going to run forever. I guess. I don't know. You know? So, so of course, I mean, if your machine doesn't have any power, then it's going to have not that of a good time. And of course, if things in the machine break down, then yeah, it's also not going to run forever. And it's also not going to work out therefore. So it's, you know, I might be just talking about something completely different. Could definitely be the case because I don't know. But, but there's actually a lot of things that go into that. But I'm actually quite sure that I'm talking about something different. The next thing on the origin of morality. The next two or three, I'm actually not quite sure, they're going to be about morality. And um, yeah, we will see. The genetic fallacy, which is, um, by the way, also on Wikipedia. So if you want to check it out, check it out. It's actually pretty interesting. The genetic fallacy, the mistake of inferring current fiction or meaning from ancestral function or meaning. And I'm willing to repeat, the mistake of inferring current fiction or meaning from ancestral function or meaning from page 465. Does that mean that religious texts are worthless as guides to ethics? Of course not. They are magnificent sources of insight into human nature and into the possibilities of ethical codes. Just as we should not be surprised to discover that Asian folk medicine has a great deal to teach modern tech modern high-tech medicine, we should not be surprised if we find that these great religious texts hold versions of the very best ethical systems any human culture will ever devise. And I do think that, which is the first thing, and this is also why I'm having these herbs there, uh, I think, yeah, you know, when it comes to medicine per se, there, I mean, we're still using herbs, we're still using just those Maybe we are at this point of time referring to them as kind of alternative medicine, but we're still using them. And also just, you know, it, it depends on the culture you're living in. You know, some cultures are using more of them and some cultures are like, wow, you know, I'm going to just fucking bang myself with pills and whatnot till I'm getting fucking healthy, which may or may not work and or may work, but may be really unhealthy. Um, but, but we're still using herbs and we're still drinking tea even though, like, meanings change, you know, I think back in the days, tea was really, like, medicine, and tea was really meant to, to be also kind of used as medicine, or for medical, um, for medical things, or medical purposes, not really in the sense of just using it as medicine, but using it as, okay, you know, I just don't feel that good today, maybe I'm just gonna drink a tea, or maybe I'm just having a little bit of a bad stomach, so therefore, I'm going to drink a tea. Of course, some people are still still using them in that way. But um, I think the meaning changed a little tiny bit. But still, also, uh, referring to religious things and religious texts, I do want to say that, yes, um, 
Just because it is religious doesn't mean that it is bad. It is still literature. And it is still also, to some degree, communicating or just about what life was back in the days, maybe. And I think if you're just deciphering all these uh, cues, if you will, and all these texts uh, from the Bible or from whatever religious book you want to uh, examine, then I think you're just probably going to find some really interesting things and really um, maybe useful as well. I'm not quite sure, but definitely interesting things. In all the mammalian species that have so far been carefully studied, the rate at which their members engage in the killing of conspecifics uh, is several thousands times greater than the highest homicide rate measured in any American city. Which is insane. Really, kind of. In the killing of con... I don't actually know what a conspecies is, so I might just look it up. Uh, of animal or plants belonging to the same species. In the killing of conspiracy, several... But, but I mean, yeah, can you really compare homicide with just uh, species killing other species? Is, isn't homicide like suicide? Or am I wrong? That he was charged with homicide. Oh, murder. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Um, I guess so. You know, because actually there are no fucking rules, but we're gonna come to that. What is the reasonable and just response of insurance companies to the actual... What actual facts about the different life expectancies of man and woman? Is it fair to adjust their premiums accordingly? Or should we treat both genders alike in the premium department and accept their differential rate of receiving benefits as fair? And to actually come to the first point, and then we're gonna just talk about this uh, rather strange picture. I'm gonna zoom in a bit so that you can see it. Um, it's actually very sad, but it is not really sad. But um, coming back to the first point, which was about uh, species and stuff like that, like, um, yeah, there is actually no rules, you know, because we made up rules, you know, the rule of, okay, you're not allowed to kill anybody else. And we're seeing it as something, uh, I think also as something ethical and also moral. I, I do think that we wouldn't kind of be able to kill other people if, um, if it wasn't in war or if there was not just something really incredible going on, if you know what I mean. I mean, of course, if there is just some zombie shit going on and some stuff, then yeah, you know, we might be cannibals and we might eat each other and stuff like that. Because when it is about pure survival, then um, other things really just um, start to happen. I would say, at least at my point of view, and as I can think about it. But of course, I know at this point in time, there's no reason for me to, to kill anybody and also for just you know, a lot of other people, there is no reason to kill anybody else. Um, for these species, maybe, or for these mammals, maybe, because it might be that they're threatening their space, that they're threatening just, I don't know, their children or some shit like this, you know, that, you know, I do think that nobody, whether it is an animal or human being, is killing another animal or human being for no reason, which may or may not be right, because we humans we humans are really fucked up and we're killing things because it is fun. But I don't necessarily, necessarily, it could definitely be the case, think that this is the case for animals as well. I mean, if this thing is in my territory or territory, then yeah, okay, I'm gonna fucking kill it. If I was a mammal or whatnot. But yeah. Um, the other thing was, um, they, or them, the insurance companies, adjusting their prices to gender. And, you know, if you Google adjust, then you're going to find this picture because it is kind of adjusting this pendulum there, I guess. Still looks funny. 
because you know she's standing there like just strange <laughs> which is actually kind of the beauty of me uh, picking out some random fucking pictures because some of them are actually um not hilarious but but they are quite funny you know they can be quite funny the thing is for me it is just totally fine it is about them making money you know of course insurance companies i think are the companies that are making the most money besides maybe just some other industries but i'm not quite sure i think they're really uh, really and very high on the list there but um but yeah i'm fine with that i mean if the mortality rate is different then yeah it just makes sense to just be like okay you know if you uh, you know you're gonna pay more because you're more likely to die as it is with um i don't know if they're also doing this with I don't know if somebody's a smoker and um, that he or she has to pay a higher, um, whatever it is called in English, I don't actually know, um, a higher price monthly for the insurance when it is life insurance, for example. Um, it would make sense because, yes, the chance of this person dying is way higher and he or she is insured. So there's going to be quite some money that is coming to the family and whomever if he or she dies. So it makes sense, it really does, and so why shouldn't we be doing this with um, genders as well, I think. Jane Lancaster does in fact object to the word haram, or haram, however you want to pronounce it, used to refer to the group of females guarded and mated by a single male, such as an elephant seal. She recommends the term one male group, since these females are virtually self-sufficient, except for fertilization. I don't know where this is coming from, to be honest, because it is kind of random, but um, interesting that they're using the word haram, which I think is either Arabic, I think it is Arabic, or Arabic, very sorry, um, and I don't, I could actually, let's see what the computer is saying, computer says no, um, women's quarters in Muslim societies, ah, Oh, ah, it is harem and not haram. I'm sorry, harem. It reminds me of Harlem and stuff. And uh, the separate part of a Muslim household reserved for wives, concubines, and female servants. We were invited to historical, blah, 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 blah. Okay, yeah, I see. I mean, the thing is, um, I don't really know what I, I had to think about an embryo. Why did I think about an embryo? Ah, yeah, of the fertilization, of course, you know, because um, I don't know what, what, the, what the big deal there is. I don't know why he's pointing that out, but but yeah, okay, it is the case. You know, it, it might be something bad, it might not be something bad. I'm actually really unsure because I don't know, I'm really unknowledgeable in this space. So, so here you have an embryo. <laughs> the next point is going to be redesigning morality. And there we're going to have a, a few more pictures. For the most part, philosophers have been content to ignore the practical problems of real-time decision-making regarding the brute fact that we are all finite and forgetful and have to rush to judgment as a real but irrelevant element of friction in the machine whose blueprint they are describing. And I think by a machine they mean life. We need to have alert wise habits of thoughts or in other words colleagues who will regularly if not infallibly draw our attention in directions we will not regret in hindsight. Which I think is um, uh, amazing, because I thought about something very important, thought about something that I've been also talking about quite often. The left picture is, um, you, I think you're having attitude, or is it called attitude or attitude? 
it's the one, you know, the height, if you just know what I mean. And the other thing is, um, what's the other thing? I think decision height or something. And I thought it was actually pretty interesting that there is some sort of this share. And it's interesting because, I don't know, it's just an infographic about how to land a plane, I guess. I assume, because this is what I'm seeing. And the other picture, you know, which uh, actually is called Americans and is from Wikipedia. So if you Google Americans, you're probably going to find this one. And it is about the people around us because, you know, I've been actually searching for a picture for the people around us and I found this instead. I think it is actually very well done and I think it is a pretty cool thing. But my point is that it is so important to consciously some sort of decide what people that you're surrounding yourself with. You know, there's going to be people that are good for you and there's going to be people that are not too good for you because of certain character traits, because of how they are, because of what they like, because of how they act, because of because of whatever. You know, there's multiple reasons why um, somebody might be good or bad for you, quote-unquote. So yeah, think about that. And the last piece for today, faced with a world in which such predicaments are not unknown we can recognize the appeal of a little old-time religion some unquestioning dogmatics that will render agents impervious or impervish to the subtle invasion of hyper rationality what is going on there um ethical decision making examined from the perspective of darwin's dangerous idea holds out scant hope of our ever discovering a formula or an algorithm for doing right but that is not an occasion for despair. We have the mind, the mind tools we need to design and redesign ourselves, ever searching for better solutions to the problems we can create for ourselves and others. Something that I found particularly interesting is saying for better solutions to the problems we create for ourselves and others. Because we're often creating problems for ourselves and we can often solve them by stepping into our mind and doing something about things whatever it might be. But I also particularly like the first point because what I've seen there is just us as human beings. You know, this is us. This is a human being. It is actually a skeleton, but it is us. And yes, indeed, we sometimes do not want to rationally think. We sometimes do want to just believe in something because because it is us, because we are human beings, because um, we're not going to be 100% rational. Uh, we're not going to be 100% like just uh, also trying to optimize things. We are also not just trying to to whatever. You know, sometimes we're just believing in things and sometimes we just also want to believe in things and we want to just have this um, little bit of uh, maybe fiction in life if you want to or something. And the other one is actually indeed about changing things because we can change things because we are actually very good at optimizing and changing, you know, because you know we can analyze, we can see things then we can create a concept of, okay, what makes sense to do. Then we're going to design this life or we're going to design this, this way of, of being that is hopefully going to lead us to um, our desired goal. And then just evaluating, have I done it right or not right? And then we're going to analyze once again. I think this uh, infographic, by the way, is about something completely different. So I don't know, just made my speech up right now. But I think it actually worked pretty fine. You know, I just think it's actually kind of working in that way. And yeah, this is the end of these three chapters. And yeah, I'm hopefully going to see you the next time. And therefore, I'm wishing you the best health of happiness and also success. And also hope that you're going to remind yourself and you're going to be remembered, which basically means your legacy and basically means just being a nice person. And then also being remembered as a nice person, which is a pretty cool thing.
Um, yeah, three other questions that I'm having for you are, why are you here? What are you trying to change? And what is bothering you the most? These three questions are hopefully going to show you your purpose and maybe even a business idea, which is a pretty cool thing. And one other question that I'm having for you is, what could you do? What could you say? What could you make to really change somebody's life? Because I believe that you can or could or maybe also should. And it is amazing. So yeah, let's be generous. Let's center around being a nice person because it is amazing. It is amazing to be a nice person. It is amazing to just, um, yeah, to do that. And, and, and anyway, I'm hopefully going to see you the next time. Please stay cool. Please stay generous. Please stay a super good human being. And I'm going to see you the next time. So bye-bye.